Second reading comes from Titus chapter 1, reading verses 10 to 16. For there were many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Well, hello again. I'd love to add my welcome to John's. And can I say that I really appreciate your prayers for me and my family, both as we begin our time here at Richmond Anglican and also ongoing. Uh, so please continue to pray for us. That would be a wonderful way that you could bless us um, in our time here. Please keep your Bibles open there at that passage in Titus that we just read, if you do have Bibles. Um, if you don't, maybe um, Steph can shoot the passages up on the screen as I refer to them. That will be excellent. Thank you very much. We are going to have a question time later on as well, though. So if, you, if questions come up on the way through, um, keep a note of those and, and you can ask them at the end. All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we come to this part of your word now, you will make us people who so value and cherish the goodness of the message of Jesus that we do want to hold on to it. Uh, and that we do equip ourselves to recognise its truth more clearly, particularly so that we can recognise any false teaching that may creep in among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Down the road from where I used to live, in the next suburb over, there was an old church building that hadn't been used as a church for a long time, years, even decades, the, the, the whole time I had seen it there. And I remember I used to drive past it pretty often and on occasion I'd see a sign at the front saying that it was being used for church rehearsals, sorry, for orchestra rehearsals, not for church. And over time it was just falling into gradual disrepair and falling apart. Recently though it was, it was sold and it was being renovated and, and fixed up and converted into a childcare centre. Now... Church buildings in themselves are not really that significant. They're just a rain shelter to keep the rain, I guess, and the sun off the actual church, which is the people, right? That's the church. But that's the problem there, because the people were gone. The church had died sometime in the past, and it got me thinking, what a tragedy that is. And how does something like that happen? A place that had been a thriving gathering of God's people is now no more. And particularly, I guess, how can we make sure that it doesn't happen to us? You know, there's been faithful gospel ministry here in Richmond for 179 years now, but we shouldn't take for granted that it's going to automatically continue for another 179 years, right? We need to make sure that it does. 
And that's the issue that we're looking at today. How do we guard against what happened to that church down the road from where I used to live? How do we guard against that kind of thing from happening to us? That's what we're looking at today. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember that we began by thinking about the devastating consequences of bad leaders in churches and the massive and the massive amount of damage that that can cause. And we talked a little bit about some of the really obvious ones, like stuff that you see in the media with, with abusive children and some of that really horrific stuff. Now, today, we are zooming in on this issue even more. But what we're looking at today, I think, is probably less dramatic and less alarming than some of those things that you see in the media. But it actually gets to the very heart of the problem. It's the problem that most other problems stem from, rise from. It's the issue of false teachers in churches. And so this whole passage that we've just read really is just expanding on the very end of the sentence before that we looked at last week, where it says in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, that, that leaders in churches need to hold firmly to the truth of the gospel message so that they can encourage people with that message and so that they can refute those who oppose it. And it's that second part, refuting those who oppose it, that we're looking at today, refuting those who oppose the message of Jesus. And so as we get to our first point, the first thing that we need to recognise is that this is actually a serious issue. False teaching is a very real danger. If you have a look at verse 11, it tells us that these false teachers are destructive. They are ruining whole households by their teaching. Let me read from verse 10 and into verse 11. It says... For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. That says disrupting whole households. That kind of sounds a little bit soft, you know, like if the phone rings during dinner, that's disrupting our household. But this is more significant than that. This is about destroying, ruining whole households, but particularly by undermining faith. Now, next week, we're going to see the positive effect of good teaching and how that should have a positive effect on households and on relationships more broadly. This is talking about the negative side of that and particularly that it's undermining the faith of households. But it's probably even more significant than that because... For these guys, households was where the churches met, right? They were probably house churches. And so ruining whole households is about ruining churches. Now, that's not really the kind of thing that's likely to make headline news. The media doesn't care about that as much unless it's to celebrate the decline of churches. But for Paul, this is a vital issue. And history has shown that any church is only ever one or two generations away from the possibility of losing the gospel and therefore dying because it allows false teaching to creep in. Just like that church that I mentioned down the road from where where I used to live. There are plenty of places throughout Australia and throughout the world that used to have thriving churches but they allowed false teaching to creep in. And now those empty church buildings with their magnificent 
stone architecture and their stained glass windows are just like beautiful tombs for those dead churches or they've been converted to childcare centres or restaurants or cafes. This is a, a real issue for churches everywhere. It was the danger that Paul saw in Crete that he's telling Titus about and it's something that we need to be on guard against too. This false teaching that can creep in and destroy the church. That's our first point, the danger of false teachers. Next, we're going to look at the convictions and the character of false teachers. You might remember that last week we talked about the importance of the character and the convictions of leaders in churches. And this is exactly the issue for false teachers. Their character and their convictions are corrupted. So let's first look at the convictions of these false teachers. And I think those words at the end of verse 14 really kind of get to the heart of the issue. See, at the end of verse 14, it says, they reject the truth. They reject the truth. And also back up in verse 9 from last week, it says, they oppose sound doctrine. Now, rejecting the truth and opposing sound doctrine, it kind of sounds pretty obvious that these are false teachers, right? It kind of sounds like they should have a big sign around their neck that says, I'm a false teacher, don't listen to me. But clearly, it wasn't that obvious because people were being fooled by them. Verse 16 says, they claim to know God and they were obviously able to convince some people that that was true. They seemed religious, that's the thing. But they had rejected the truth of the message of Jesus and that really is the heart of the problem. You see, once you remove the core, salvation as the free and generous gift of God alone, forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus, once you kind of remove that, you've removed that beating heart of faith. And all you're left with is that, that empty shell of religion that maybe looks impressive, it looks spiritual, it looks pious perhaps, but it's hollow, it's empty, it's, it's lifeless, just like those, those buildings that, that look religious and impressive, but there's nothing inside. And in the end, those, that hollow appearance of religion undermines the truth about how we really can know God. You see, it seems to me that there's an almost universal human tendency to desire religion. People want to know God. People want to connect with God. It's almost universal. But there also seems to be an almost universal human tendency to corrupt that. We want to feel like we're connecting with God. We want to feel like we, we have a relationship with God, but we do it in a way that keeps God at arm's distance. And that really was what was going on for these false teachers. They were very religious and they took advantage of people's desire to know God, people's desire to connect with God. But because they'd rejected the truth, they'd removed that beating heart of faith they were just left, as I said, with this empty shell of religion. This is what happens when you, when you remove the core of actually knowing God through faith in Jesus. You've got to replace it with something, right? Something that will give the appearance of knowing God. And these guys had replaced it 
with rituals of religion and, and rules and traditions. Have a look at, with me at some of the clues that tell us what these guys were teaching. In verse 10, it says they were the circumcision group. Now, these guys turn up uh, a few times in the New Testament. These were Christians from a Jewish background who were saying to Christians from a non-Jewish background, you must be circumcised if you want to be a real Christian. It's great that you want to follow our Messiah, but you've got to be circumcised, you've got to follow our Jewish traditions and laws, and in fact, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. And we get a bit more of a clue down in verse 14, where it talks about Jewish myths, which again suggests they were focusing on Jewish laws and religious customs. And again in verse 14, it says that what they care about were merely human traditions, commands, sorry, merely human commands. That is, those religious rituals and traditions, outward signs of religion, that might seem impressive. They might seem very religious, very pious, but they don't actually deal with the problem of the heart. Verse 15 says that they're very concerned about purity, religious purity, but they don't realise that purity and impurity... That's a heart thing, right? That begins in the heart. What we need is to be cleansed and purified from the heart. And that's what Jesus does for us. And only Jesus does that for us. By his death for our sin, by his resurrection for our new life, Jesus gives us his spirit to wash us clean and purify us. But these false teachers had had removed that from the centre. They've removed this vital core and instead they focus on man-made rules to try and create a sense of purity. Now this was a problem in first century Crete and it's still a problem today. When we reject real transforming faith in Jesus, we end up replacing it with something else. And one of those things is that outward appearance of religion. You know, over the years, I've met lots of people who seem to want some kind of connection with church or with spiritual things. You know, maybe they want their their kid baptised or confirmed or they see the the good relationships that they see in the church community and they want that or they see the, the moral life that their Christian friends live and they want that but they don't want to know God as Saviour and Lord and Father. You know, I've even met people who come to church every week, religiously, you could say, and they can tick some of the moral behaviour boxes. But for them, that's it, really. As long as I'm going through all those right steps on the outside, that's enough. And this is what the false teachers were all about. And they deceive people into thinking this way, into thinking that this is the way it needs to be. But that kills faith and it kills churches. That's the convictions of these false teachers. Religion without really knowing God. Next, the character of the false teachers. One of the the big messages of the book of Titus is that the true gospel leads to godliness Grace leads to godliness. But for these false teachers, their corrupt gospel 
is leading to ungodliness. In verse 10, they're described as rebellious, full of empty talk and deceit. In verse 11, they are motivated by dishonest gain. In verse 12, we get that proverb, that parable from a Cretan philosopher that says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and Paul says this is true of these guys. They claim to know God, verse 16, but their claim is completely contradicted and denied by how they actually live. They don't live as people who know God. And the main thing that I want us to notice here is that these false teachers, with their focus on rules and commands in the name of religion, that actually limits godliness for them, rather than promoting godliness. Now, these guys claim to be big on doing the right thing. They claim to be big on purity. And they're certainly big on rules, you know, do this and don't do that. But in the end, that actually limits the claim of godliness in their life. And this is what happens, I think, when, when we have that focus on religious rules as the core of what we're on about. We end up looking for the loopholes rather than actually having a relationship with God who we want to please. Can you, can you see how this works? You know, what can I do and what can I not do, what can't I do, ends up with what can I get away with? You know, what's the loophole in between the rules where I can kind of get away with what I want to? If I can justify it, then I can do it, right? It's kind of like the secretly rebellious child. You know, there, there are some kids that are openly rebellious and that's really obvious, but there, there, are, there are some kids that do the right thing when their parents are watching, but then when they're not watching, that's when they get up to the mischief, as long as the parents don't find out. That's kind of what these guys were like. But you see how different that is to actually having a relationship with God, actually wanting a relationship with God, and I want to please Him in all that I do. You know, I know that I'm a loved and saved child of God, and so, of course, I want to please Him in what I do and, and what I say and, and what I think. That's where the truth about Jesus is meant to lead us, but not for these false teachers. They've rejected that truth. They've removed the, the heart of faith. And so instead, they focus on religion that looks impressive, but it limits godliness. And as I think about this, I think of people that I, that I know who were obsessed with rules and they would look down on other people who don't follow their strict program, but their hearts and their consciences were actually being hardened against God. And what that led to was ungodliness in all kinds of other areas. Corrupted convictions ends up limiting godliness rather than promoting it. That's the character of these false teachers. Finally, last point, the response to false teachers. Paul's instruction to Titus was to appoint good leaders who can refute and oppose these false teachers. They must be silenced. Now, what does it look like to silence? We don't let just anybody preach. We don't let just anybody lead our youth group and our kids' church and our other teaching ministries, our Bible study groups. But I don't think this is primarily talking about the use of authority to silence people. In fact, I think this passage tells us 
what silencing them should look like. We silence false teaching by refuting it. It says there in verse 9 that the good leader encourages people with sound doctrine and refutes those who oppose it. This is how we silence that voice of destructive false teaching, by challenging it with right teaching, by exposing its error, by knowing the truth from from the lie and exposing that. See, we might be able to control the message from the pulpit, but there are so many other ways that false messages can come to us, right? Just from conversations with people, from books that we read, and from the internet, right? I mean, you know what's on the internet? Absolutely everything. You've heard that, that expression that you should never Google medical advice, but we've all done that, right? That thing where you've got an itchy big toe and you decide to Google it and you discover you've got a terminal illness and two weeks to live, but it's actually just a mozzie bite. The internet's not good for medical advice. It's not good for theological advice either. I mean, there's good stuff there, but there's lots of rubbish too. But it's there. We can't silence the internet. We can't put a nanny filter on the internet. What we can do is equip ourselves with right teaching so that we recognise false teaching when we see it. How do we do that? I mean, just some examples. Come to church expecting to hear the Bible taught, to engage with it, to, to really wrestle with what we're hearing, be active listeners. That's why we have question time after the sermon so that we can you know, wrestle a bit more with what we're, what we're reading. Join a Bible study group to engage with what we're learning, to discuss it with others, sharpening each other as we talk about it together. Read the Bible yourself, ask questions, talk to other people. And you can see the desired results of being committed to good teaching that refutes bad teaching. It's there at the end of verse 13. It says, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to these false teachings. See, we want to be the kind of people who are so well grounded in the truth that we recognise false teaching when we see it and that we don't get sucked in by it. And this really needs to work from both ends. It requires faithful Bible teachers, but it also requires everyone so engaging with what we are learning, what we are hearing, that we actually own it for ourselves. And I thought I could just finish with two examples, one a negative example and and the other one a positive one. I remember a few years ago I was talking with a, a Christian man and he said to me, that he had no interest at all in thinking about theological things. You know, not at all. He, he was a smart guy. He likes to think about a lot of things. But when it comes to the Bible and theological things, he was happy just to outsource that. You know, just tell me what to think, tell me what to believe, and I'll just get on with living the simple Christian life, he said. But then when his wife started getting involved in all kinds of false teaching weird kind of stuff, he was completely ill-equipped to deal with that or even to recognise it, frankly, and it was devastating. That's the the negative example. The positive example, I think of a a Christian man, I know an older guy who's been a Christian longer than I've been alive and a few years ago I was running a course called Christianity Explained. You might have heard of this course, it's pretty much what it sounds like, it's a 
simple ex explanation of the Christian message and we kind of opened it out to anyone who wanted to do this course. And this guy, as I said, been a Christian for longer than I've been alive, put up his hand and said, yeah, I'd like to do that. You know, I, I'd really like to just understand things as well as I possibly can. I want to nut things through and I ask, ask all the questions that I've got, which is what that course is great for, asking questions. And so we spent six weeks, the two of us, uh, just talking about the basics of the Christian message and, and nutting through these questions because he cared enough about the message of Jesus, as simple as, as it is, he wasn't, he wasn't content to leave it at simple. He wanted to just to know it as well as he possibly could, to understand it clearly, to, to delve into it all the more deeply, into all its richness, and to think about how it affects his life. And as a result, he really is someone who can recognise the right from the wrong teaching. He's someone who wants to be and who is sound in the faith. And that's what we should want to be like. That's what was Paul's goal for the churches in Crete. And that should be our goal for ourselves too. Let's pray that it will be. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will help us to recognise the goodness and the richness of the gospel, that we want to know it all the more deeply and clearly and hold on to it all the more firmly, and particularly, Father, in the context of knowing that there will be challenges to that, that there will be people who come with other messages who um, will want to take advantage of our desire to know God and to connect with you, but turn us away from the way that you have made for us to know and to connect with you and your son, Jesus. Father, may we be committed to knowing that all the more well, so that we can recognise it and that it will guard our faith and the faith of our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.